Open your Bibles, if you would. Gospel according to Mark, chapter 2. I want to thank the many who commented on last week's message. Uh, they were generally positive, and that always a good feeling. Right? Also, uh, just thank the many who commented about questions they had from the Gospel of Mark as they've been reading, because it encourages my heart to know that everybody is, is reading in their text. So, so important. Um, also want to comment for those who asked about the recording of last week's message on the Facebook page. If you look for, that, for it, it wasn't there because we didn't get it. Well, it's there now. So you can find that message from last week on the Facebook page. I also want to thank uh, Ben and Sarah Wilson. Uh, they're not here. My suspicion is they're at the Iditarod. They like to do that, and that's great. That's cool. Uh, but they put in a lot of extra effort during the week to get that recording done. Uh, just to review, uh, we're in the Gospel of Mark, obviously. Um, we've been talking about the identity and character of Jesus, who Jesus is expressed by what he does, what he came to do in our midst and what he has praised God still doing. Um, and our point in this, our, our goal in this, we've been talking about Christ's character fashioned in us. That's our goal. Christ's character fashioned in us so that we can manifest it to the world. We saw that last week, the calling of Peter and Andrew, James and John. Jesus, we noted, didn't just call them to change the nature of the catch, it wasn't yesterday you fish for fish, tomorrow you'll fish for men, but a change in their essential being. You will go from being one kind of fisherman to being another kind of fisherman. He's all about changing who we are. Well, this week we're going to look at the nature of our Lord and Savior as it relates to the question of faith. That's the subject, our, our subject this morning. So, uh, Mark chapter 2, beginning in the first verse. And when he had come back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so there was no longer room even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, My son, your sins are forgiven. But there were some of the scribes sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning this way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. But in order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, take up your pallet, go home. And he rose immediately, took up the pallet, went out in sight of all. So they were all amazed and were glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, the desi our desire, Lord, and our great need is to hear from you such that our hearts would be changed. Father, we tend to look at the world and think of things that should be changed, but we know our greatest need is that our hearts be changed. So we, we pray, Lord, through your word this day, that would be the effect in Jesus' name. Amen. Well-known passage of Scripture, a very visual passage of Scripture, and a section of Scripture with what I would describe as having a lot of moving parts. There's a whole lot going on here. And... Um, Pretty extraordinary. Uh, what I would like to draw our attention to this morning are the contrasts in this portion of Scripture. There are two really, really powerful contrasts that speak to us. Um, there's a contrast between two groups of people. There's two 
if we would say, kinds of people. There's two kinds of behavior. There's two groups of people here. And um, they're set apart by their understanding of who Jesus is, their expectation, and, and that's manifested in the actions that they take. And then the second distinction, the second contrast, if you will, is in the matter of priorities. There's two very different, different sets of priorities at work here. And all of this regarding the matter of faith. So what I'd like to do this morning is just go through this section verse by verse, um, observe these contrasts and the conclusions we can draw about them, and then ask finally the question, okay, how do we fit into this whole thing? So to begin with, uh, the text line by line. Verse 1, and I do read from the New American Standard. There's, there's certainly other really good translations, but if you're wondering, that's what I read from. Uh, it says, when Jesus had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. So he had been in Capernaum, had that incredible incident with you know, the demon-possessed guy in the synagogue. He had withdrawn for a period of, of rest, a period of prayer, and now he's come back to this village. Now, this is not his original home. Of course, he was from Nazareth. Um, Nazareth is about 40 miles away. It's inland and higher in elevation up in the mountains. It's kind of a remote village as compared to Capernaum, which is it's a small town, um, but being on the coast, uh, again, 40 miles away, from Nazareth, being on the coast of the Sea of Galilee, there's a lot more traffic through it. This was a fairly heavily populated area in Galilee, right along the coast of the Sea of Galilee. So a lot more people are going to be hearing about Jesus and seeing Jesus than when he was in Nazareth. So he had made it uh, a temporary home away from home, base of operations, if you will, in the first part of his ministry. And now he's come back and he's staying either in a home that he had acquired for himself, you know, temporarily, or equally possible, maybe the homes of one of the disciples. But he's standing in a home, and the word gets out in verse 2, and a crowd gathers. Now, here we need to stop just for a moment, because the Middle East, and anyone that's been in the Middle East, you know this, the Middle East definition of a crowd and our definition of a crowd are drastically different, right? If every seat in here was full right now, and maybe there were even a couple of people standing, you'd say, well, we have a crowd, right? This is not a Middle Eastern crowd. You need to double that number, right? And, and, if you, and if you've spent extensive enough time in the Middle East to acclimate, and then you come home, it really is evident. Because, you know, when we talk about a face-to-face -face conversation in English, it's like, you know, so. A normal conversation is like, so, right? The whole space thing is. So this place is packed. That's the point I'm trying to make. This house is jammed full of people. And it says you can't even get in the door. It was so full, right? And Jesus is speaking to the crowd, and it's important to note that the text says he was preaching the word to them. And if you've been with us for long, long at all, you know about the importance, the huge importance of that little word the in the Greek language, and it is in the Greek text. It means it carries this incredible weight of specificity. So what, what Mark is telling us is, is Jesus is on track with this core essential message that he's been preaching from the beginning. Which was what? Time is fulfilled. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Time is fulfilled. Everything that had to happen has been fulfilled. All the prophecies were fulfilled. Everything that had to happen is fulfilled. Boom. Kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. All you have to do is take it. Right? Kingdom of heaven is present. How do, you, how do you take it? Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. So this is, and Jesus is making this point to this crowd gathered in a house in Capernaum, right? Singularity of Jesus' purpose really stands out. Verse 3, again, we know, this, we know the account so well. They came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Now, the grammar conveys the idea the actual group that brought the paralytic was probably larger. 
But when they got to the point of actually, you know, lowering him down, that was a four-man job. So we have a group of people, and they're, of course, up on the roof. And verse 4 is where it really, really gets interesting. Uh, just a quick word about roof construction in the Middle East. Amazing, this system of construction uh, that I'll be talking about, consistent for literally thousands of years. Uh, you can go to old homes in the Middle East today, not just Israel, but throughout the Middle East and Near East, you can find homes that are built this way. You can go to my grandfather's home, and it's built this way. And I will never forget that moment of standing in the house my grandfather was born in and looking up at the roof and going, oh my God, that's it, right? It started with, of course, the main beams of the structure of the house. But above those beams, it was a four-layer system. There, was inter there were interwoven sticks, and I mean, not much more than sticks, right? These were all intended to be done very cheaply because most people in that part of the world don't have a lot of money. So these sticks would be woven together to provide a network, and then on top of that, there would be dried straw or grass or some type of, of readily available, cheap, you know, vegetative matter to form a barrier. And then on top of that, there would be a, a pretty good layer of sand. And that sand would provide insulation from that you know, Middle Eastern heat, which can get so intense. And then on top of that would be tiles. And these tiles could be clay, or even in some areas where slate was common, they would use slate to create a very efficient, did a really good job of, of repelling heat, and would also provide a flat surface so in the summer, when the house did get just too hot, at night you could go up on the roof and you could you know, have dinner and sleep up there. Often there would be a canopy or an awning of some type to shield from the sun. Very efficient system. Well, that gives us a pretty good idea of what these guys had to do to get through it. And, of course, the text notes that they were doing it directly above where Jesus is teaching. So you get a really powerful visual if you just use a little bit of imagination. you got this room. It's jammed full of people. Jesus is teaching, and things start happening above them, right? And I, I, could, I can't help but wonder, you know, how that looked as Jesus is just teaching away and little bits of material begin to fall down and the noise of them taking up the tiles and digging out. Interesting, Luke tells, covers the same account, and Luke spec specifies the removal of the tiles, right? And in, here in Mark's account, he specifies the digging. So the tiles were lifted up, the sand was dug away, and then they just tore the grass and they tore the smaller sticks away to provide an opening big enough to lower the paralytic through, okay? Um, I, obviously, this had to attract a fair amount of attention, right? I mean, obviously, Jesus just didn't keep going on the way he was going because everybody in the room was quite aware of this. And it says in verse 5 that Jesus observing all this, right? He was observing faith. I'll talk about that in another verse. Jesus, observing all this, says to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now notice, he's observing action, but he's going to talk about it in terms of faith. Remember, it's a, letter, it's a letter written to the Roman mind, focused on actions, right? Very consistent with the Roman perspective, but it also speaks the simple reality that faith that is genuine faith, will manifest itself in actions. James makes that really clear. Faith without works is what? Dead. So Jesus is looking at their action. We're going to see in just another verse, it's faith he's responding to, right? He interprets action as faith, and he says, son, observing their faith, he says, son, your faith, or rather, son, your sins have been forgiven. At this point, 
there's kind of a pause, right? Sons, your sins are forgiven. We, we can de- de- uh, conclude from this that the paralytic was younger. Um, probably, we know he wasn't Jesus' biological son, but Jesus is nonetheless extending this familial bond to it, right, to him. That's all good. That's all good. But it's also, I think, pretty obvious we can conclude, it's a conclusion, you can free to disagree, that when Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, there was kind of this collective sigh, maybe disappointment. I mean, I put myself in the, in, the, in the place of the four guys that hauled him up the stairs, got him on the roof, tore up the roof, and lowered a paralyzed human being down through the hole. They probably were not thinking they were going to hear, hey, your sins are forgiven. What are they looking for? What has Jesus done every time in the past they've encountered? He's looking for, you know, rise, take up your pallet, and walk. You're healed. Every person in that room, when they saw the paralytic descending as though from heaven, what are they anticipating? What's the question on everybody's mind? Is Jesus going to heal him or not? And Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven, right? There's a pause in the air. Verse 6, Mark takes advantage of that pause to make an observation. He says, there were some of the scribes sitting there. There's a lot, there's a lot in that simple statement. Uh, the scribes were those, of course, charged with the responsibility of copying the biblical texts or any other documents that needed to be copied, right? Goes without saying, you wanted to copy, you had to make it. Um, their job carried incredible responsibility. I know many of you are familiar with this. When the scribes were copying a biblical scroll, if they made a mistake, they, who knows, burned the scroll. There's no whiteout, no crossout, no. You make a mistake copying a scroll. I don't care if you're in the last chapter of Isaiah. The whole scroll goes in the fire. Incredibly demanding task. And as a result, they became incredible experts in the law. They were experts in the law, knowledgeable about what the law said, in a culture that already had incredibly elevated standards of what you were expected to know. In the first century, Any good little Jewish boy, properly educated, by the age of 13, would know the entire Pentateuch, that's the first five books, by heart. That was the standard of a proper Jewish education. First five books of the Bible, in your head. These guys are way beyond that. So these are the real experts. And because they were the experts, they were the ones that were looked to as the authorities on what the text said, And then it became an interpretive task. They were the ones also looked to as to what the text meant. Now, when Luke writes about this this episode, uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 17, he introduces it this way. He said, it came to pass on a certain day as he was teaching, there were Pharisees and doctors of the law, that would have been the scribes, Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem. So now we have not just the local religious authorities in and around Galilee. This is the first time that Jesus, we know, has drawn the attention of the religious authorities in Jerusalem. And they have sent a deputation up to Capernaum to know what exactly this guy is teaching. So now, if you will allow me to use the expression, Jesus is running with the big dogs. The religious authorities from Jerusalem itself have showed up to check this guy out. They want to know what he's saying. It also, just again, several things to observe in, the, in, this, in this passage of Scripture. First time, these guys are there. Second time, 
we note that the religious authorities, and I think it's fascinating that both Mark and Luke make this relatively simple observation, but it's quite powerful. They are, get a full room, right? Standing room only, and these guys are sitting there. You get the sense that they are sitting there. They're checking this Jesus guy out. They're not engaged. They're just there to observe. And then it says, what else? It says they were there. The religious authorities were there. They were sitting there. And then it says something absolutely extraordinary. I'd never noticed it until this week. It says, the last thing in that verse from Luke, the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Who's the them? Who's the them? If you look at, you look at the fifth chapter of Luke, there's nobody else discussed in that in immediate textual environment. The power of, of God was present in that room to heal those very religious authorities. Now, that, I don't know. If that doesn't do something inside, I, I don't know. That shakes me up a little bit. To know here are these people whose knowledge of the text, of the biblical text, was as perfect as perfect could be. The power of God is specifically present to heal them, to minister to them. And what is their response? They're going to watch. They're going to observe. There's a warning in that. There's a warning in that. They observe what's happening, and these characters conclude, we're back in Mark 2 now, and they conclude in their hearts, they are reasoning in their hearts, still silent, not saying anything, but reasoning in their hearts, and verse 7 tells us what they think. He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? This is blasphemy. So here we are, we're only in the second chapter of Mark, or the fifth chapter of Luke, and the religious experts have already decided this early in the Gospels, Jesus is a blasphemer which carries the death penalty. They've already ruled out anything except capital punishment. I've said it before, I will continue to say it. Jesus was not crucified because they didn't understand him. He was crucified because they did. They understood perfectly what he was saying and their answer was death. Their response to the teaching of the word of life, their response to the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit is to say, this man deserves death. Talk about a hardened heart. Talk about a hardened heart. Jesus said, why are you reasoning, this is verse 8, why are you reasoning these things in your heart, right? Now, there's nothing wrong with reasoning, right? The normative word for reasoning or thinking is logizome, from which we get our English word logic, right? There's nothing wrong with logic. God gave it to us for a reason, right? But this is a different form of that word. It is the word theologizome, which means to dialogue. That's where our English word dialogue comes from. So they're stuck, right? They've got their, they've got their, their a priori thoughts, their preconceived conclusions, you know, what the Messiah is going to be and what the Messiah can't be. What a, what a rabbi is, what a rabbi, they got all their preconceived ideas and they're seeing stuff in front of them that they've never seen before. And rather than draw a conclusion that, hey, maybe my previous you know, assumptions were wrong, I need to make some adjustments, they get stuck in this dialogue spot between what they assumed and what they see, what they thought were true and what they can see to be true. They're stuck in this place of dialogue. Jesus said, why are you there? Right? 
And then he asked the relevant question. He said, what's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Verse 10, Jesus gets to his main point. In order that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. This is where these two contrasts really begin to stand out. The first one is two obvious kinds of people. People who have faith and express that faith in action and people who are stuck in their doubt and inaction. That's the first contrast. But there's a second set of priorities here that Jesus' statement, my son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, in order that you may know that the Son of Man has an authority to do that, I'm going to tell them to rise and walk. A second contrast is made obvious. If one between one very human and very reasonable set of priorities, which in this case would, of course, be the paralytic's healing, but the other, which are God's priorities. Jesus did not say, your sins are forgiven, simply as a way of setting up what he was going to do, as it's often presented. No, Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, because that's the greater need. That is the greater need. We'll talk more about that, right? Two sets of priorities, two kinds of people, and two kinds of priorities. Two sets and a contrast. Jesus tells the paralytic, get up, carry your bed, and go home. Now, why did he do that? Well, he said in order to show the Son of Man has authority on earth, right? His first act, your sins are forgiven, is in response to the faith of those who brought them there. His second act, take up your bed and go home, is in response to unbelief. There's a clear demonstration of Jesus' power to forgive and heal, but there's also a power, a demonstration to every person that Jesus is the determining factor. Now, one question that, that arises in the text, again, I didn't notice it until I looked really carefully. When Jesus said to the Pharisees, I'm sorry, the scribes, which is easier to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk, and he actually turned to the paralytic, he changed it. Have you caught it or not? He said to the Pharisees, which is, again, the scribes, again, I'm sorry. He said, which is easier to say, you know, your sins are forgiven, or take up your bed and walk. Obviously, it's much easier to say your sins are forgiven. Anybody can say that because there's no way of knowing if it happened or not. But wow, to say, rise, take up your pallet and walk, that's rough because if it doesn't happen, everybody's going to know it, right? He said that to the scribes, but then when he turned to the paralytic, he said, I think this is glorious. He said, rise, take up your pallet, and go home. Why did he tell him to leave? I mean, I'm thinking, I'm this paralytic, and I, I love... One of the questions that the text doesn't answer that someday I want to find out, maybe I have to wait to heaven to find out, is where's the paralytic in this whole thing? He's just laying there, you know, looking, not saying, just looking, right? Until he stands up, right? But when Jesus said to the paralytic, rise, take up your pallet and go home, why did he tell him to go home? I would imagine he would like to have stayed, you know, thank Jesus, listen to his preaching. So why did he tell him to go home? Well, what was the purpose for healing him? In order that you may know that the Son of Man has authority. He's going to pick up his pallet, and he's going to walk home. And what's going to happen at every house along the way? I mean, I didn't let my imagination go on these kind of things. I just picture there's some old crusty Galilean fisherman sitting at home. Wife probably wanted to go to the meeting, hear, you know, hear Jesus preach, but he wanted nothing to do with it because he's tired, because fishing's been lousy, and his boat's broken down, and his nets need mending, and he can't even pay his guys. He just wants to rest. 
and he's you know sitting there in his corner reading his fishing magazines, and um, his wife is his wife is washing dishes in the window. She says, "Honey, you'll never believe just who walked by." Yeah, the guy who they never seen walk before. So Jesus is not only demonstrating his authority to the people in the room; he's got the whole village covered. Yeah. It's all about showing people who he is, his authority, his power, his identity. And what we're seeing is people, people respond to that in faith. So here's the observations for us. First of all, again, again, about Jesus. He's on task. He's preaching the good news. He's responding to faith, seeing their faith. It's about faith, which is about more with what we do than what we say we believe. It's easy to say what we believe. Our actions are what count. But it's also something about faith itself. This is really good news, by the way. I think Jesus has a much more generous standard of sufficient faith than we do. Because the minute we come, we come to God with a need and we ask him to do something, unless the, unless the answer is instant, what do we start asking? Was my faith sufficient? And we get into this, this thing of, ah, do I have faith or not? And I think we sometimes even go so far as to entertain the idea that this faith thing has to be like an all or nothing thing. That unless I have this incredible amount of faith and I'm just living in 100% faith, it's just not going to be enough and it's just not going to count. Instead of realizing, I think, I have to acknowledge this, that more often than not, I'm more like this. I'm a mixture of faith and unbelief. I'm a mixture of confidence and doubt. And I'm praying, and the only reason I'm praying is because I have some faith, but at the same moment, I, and I have elements of doubt, and then I find my wondering, is that going to be too much doubt, not enough faith, and if Jesus doesn't answer, it's obvious because I didn't have enough faith. And I get, you get caught in this, this cyclical thing, and it's insane, right? Notice, I got a whole new take on, on, on faith at this point. Notice that when he says to the paralytic, verse 12, he rose and immediately took up the pallet where he was and walked. Go back to chapter 1. What does that word immediately mean? It's not time. Remember we, saw, we heard it in the preaching of John the Baptist where he says make his way straight. That's actually that same word as immediate. It meant without barriers or obstacles. John the Baptist's message was get the obstacles out of the way. Faith is what does that. And here is what I would conclude, and I hope this is encouraging, that when we get caught in this thing where we're between faith and unbelief, doubt and confidence, you know, that when we act in faith, the simplest act of faith has the effort of clearing that debris. The doubt, the unbelief, the questions, they don't just mystically disappear. No, but when we take that first step, of faith, which is simply asking, simply praying, stepping out in trust, we start moving that debris pile of unbelief. We start moving the obstacles out of the way until finally we come to a place that like the paralytic, we can actually get up, pick up that thing that we were laying on, that brokenness that was part of our identity. The bed was part of his identity. The pallet was part of who he was. We can actually bear that through our, our, our world as a testimony to the power of God. We know that faith is an absolute necessity. 
Matthew observes in Matthew 13, 58, regarding Jesus' time in Nazareth, he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. But I think we really overestimate what Jesus is looking for when he looks for faith. We, I, think, I tend to think he's looking for some perfection of faith in me. He's got a paralytic guy in front of him. They just got lowered down through the roof by four people. We don't know whether this guy had any faith yet or not, but hey, they got faith. I got faith. I can work with it. Jesus looks for faith to work with. And based on this text, I would have to conclude he's not particularly picky where he finds it. He just needs some. That mustard seed that he referred to. It doesn't even need to be in the person laying on the bed. Anybody, give me some faith, is what he's telling us, and he can work with it. When we exercise faith, it moves the barriers and obstacles of unbelief out of our way. Jesus responds to faith, even if it comes from the wrong person, right? If nothing else, the paralytic had the simple faith to try. And that's the thing about faith. It moves barriers. That's the first contrast between two groups, the group that had faith, exercised faith, and the group that didn't. Though the power of God was immediately present, though they knew the truth about God because they knew his word, they were experts in the law, but they could not respond. They had not faith, right? But there's also a contrast between priorities, and this is a lot harder to come to terms with. It's a simple priority that his, it's a simple contrast, rather, that his priorities are so different than ours. Isaiah 55, 8, my thoughts are not your thoughts, your ways are not my ways, right? When those four guys lowered the paralytic down into the house and they heard your sins are forgiven, I'm sure there was a level of disappointment. Consider the disappointment on the part of the paralytic. I went through all this, and this is what I got out of the deal? Your sins are forgiven? I want to be healed, man. I wonder, and I, I say this just to illustrate a point, I wonder if Jesus had stopped at that point and made the paralytic an offer. I can do one of two things right now. I can heal you. You will stand up and you will walk out here. You'll even carry your bed out. But with that load, you will carry all the sins of your life. Every one of them. Your slate will remain as defiled as it is right now. Or... I can forgive you your sins. Eternity is wide open, and you will spend eternity in the blissful presence of God. But between now and then, you're going to be a paralytic. Which would he have chosen? Which should he have chosen? Here's the good news. He doesn't make us make that choice. He, he doesn't put that choice upon us. But that possibility, and again, I offer it only as an illustration, demonstrates the importance of Jesus' priorities over ours. Jesus understood the greater priority was the forgiveness of sins. You know, we ask God for something, and if it doesn't happen right away, we start asking questions about our faith or right faith or strong faith, and if we don't get an answer there, we start to even question the goodness of God because the prayer wasn't answered. Perhaps we should have the wisdom to ask, we ask, realizing that every prayer we offer is laid before a God that does have an entirely different set of priorities than we do, has a completely different understanding of what is for our benefit. And his priorities, by the way, always include that which is best for us. We ask in ignorance. He, uh, he answers in perfect knowledge. So whether his answer to a prayer is yes, 
or no, or yes, but not right now, we can be confident that it's with a priority system that always involves that which is best for us. When we bring our request before God, we need to remember who we're asking, that he loves us completely, he sees our world from a totally different perspective, and he answers out of different priorities, but he always answers out of love for us and with our best interest in mind. And that, I think, is the conclusion that we can draw from all this. We have to ask two simple questions this morning. Number one, which group do I want to belong in? Do I want to belong in a group that acts in faith? If it, if it means tearing a hole in somebody's roof, don't tell them I said you could do that. I'm just making a point. Do we want to belong to the group that acts in faith, trusting in who Jesus is, or the other group, never quite satisfied? And are we ready, as we walk in faith, to accept his priorities and in the discovery of his priorities, find his character manifested in us? For as we embrace his priorities, we become like him. And that's the goal. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. Father, thank you for this incredible event that, that, that Mark and his wisdom chose to record for us. It speaks to us so much about who you are, about how, who we are, and how we, Father, approach you. And I, just, I pray this morning that we would have the confidence in you to act in faith and the courage, Father, to respond when things don't go the way we want them, to trust in the God who is working out a completely different set of priorities in our hearts and minds. Help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and worship the Lord this morning.